I checked them balls and found nothing. I watched you and saw nothing. And that the likes of me can't see it, Hubert, the likes of umpires sure as hell won't. The spit that's gone for it reaches an ump is what we call in the trade incidental precipitation. And I say if it's incidental, it's legal. That was David James Duncan reading aloud from his novel, The Brothers K. David's our guest on the show today to talk about what he calls spitball morality, as well as the writing of The Brothers K and the short story that preceded it, The Mickey Mantle Koan. The Brothers K is about a family living in the Pacific Northwest during the 1960s who are divided by the very things that were dividing the country at that time, religion, politics, the war, but also unusually, one man's quest to revive his baseball career. I love this book. David writes with an energy and a warmth and an intelligence, always seeking what is true at the heart of things. And baseball is, of course, a key part of that, as it should be. Elliot, what stood out to you about this book? Yeah, I know, uh, so much. Uh, just the idea that um, tragedy brings people together and out of a lot of sorrow, there can be something really positive. And with that, here's our interview. We. Uh, are just so delighted to have you here, David. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure, happy to be here. You were starting to talk about um, the connections between the baseball at the heart of the Mickey Mantle koan and the the novel, The Brothers K. So um, why don't we just let you keep going with that? All right. Um, well, the great psychologist James Hillman had a statement that really really makes sense here. He said, our wounds are the mothers and fathers of our destiny. That's been my experience. And the mother and father of the brothers K was the death of my oldest brother, John. Uh, I was 13 when he died. John was 17. He's my best friend, uh, my protector, you know, just the noblest big brother you could have, but he had a congenital heart defect. And, um, after three failed surgeries, his heart became too shredded to be repaired, um, but still kept beating. So the difficult thing was it took him six months to die. And um, that was incredibly hard. And then he got staph infection and still lived quite a while. Uh, he just was really determined to live. Um, but our prayers evoked no miracles and the staff took him out. And uh, at his funeral, there was a preacher who didn't know John from Judge Kenesaw Mountain Landis. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was really painful to hear this guy, um, you know, eulogize him in a way that was unrecognizable. He sounded like some pious ninny. And my brother was 17 when he died. And... Um, when I was 17 times two, 34, I wrote a memoir that I published in Harper's and later in River Teeth. And uh, because if I'd been in the preacher's shoes, I would have at least mentioned a few of his, my brother's actual attributes. And so that's what this memoir did. It resurrected who my brother really was. What were some of the attributes that for you, you still think about your brother? Yeah, he, he was... Um, one, well, the thing that amazed me the most about my brother was that he was really comfortable with girls. 
And at 12, I was not. <laughs> and and uh, he was really um, genteel toward uh, the opposite sex. It just the kind of silliness you hear from adolescent boys never came out of him. And he always had a lovely girlfriend and was completely natural around them. And um, I was really impressed by that. He was the fastest runner in his class, but he loved baseball so much that he wouldn't go out for track. He, uh, he, his hero was Mickey Mantle and he just wanted to be in the game and he was not a good hitter. He, he was a great base runner, but it was difficult for him to just didn't have the hand-eye magic that it takes to hit a fastball or those really wild pitches that come at you in high school from some kid who's 6'4 and has no control of his body yet. That was like, that was when I quit the game. I got hit a few times and um, the second time I played golf, I broke 40 and thought, fuck baseball. This is fun. Nobody's throwing me. <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, he, he just, he was just really noble, really kind. We had the same birthday and we played hundreds and hundreds of games of catch in our front yard. And I read that you got to 800 in a row. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, I think that's right. So I have three younger brothers and we used to play backyard baseball quite a bit growing up. And by that we, we made up rules, uh, because I'm the oldest. Uh -huh. And so it resonates to me, it touches me to hear you talk about um, your oldest brother, um, but my middle brother, or what the third youngest, uh, unfortunately was the best athlete out of, out of all of us. And so we made rules to hinder his ability to win. Uh, so if you hit the ball into the palm tree, you immediately got out. And the reason why that happened was because I would bat lefty because being the oldest, I was still a little bit bigger than everyone. And so I would never pull the ball, but he would pull the ball batting righty. And so he got out numerous times this way by hitting the ball into the palm tree and getting stuck. Uh, and so he doesn't know this, but that's, that's how we create the rules. <laughs> that's typical big brother abuse of the younger sibling. <laughs> you damn lawmaking bandit. <laughs> well, to get on with, with what haunted me about the baseball and where Brothers K came from, um, Mickey Mantle was my brother's hero. And my, when John was dying, my mother wrote to Mantle and he responded with an autographed baseball and wrote to John, my best wishes, your pal, Mickey Mantle, April 6, 1965. That's the day my brother died and the baseball arrived the day my brother was being embalmed. So <clears throat> for me, it soon had the exact opposite effect, just the timing. <clears throat> of the death and the embalming uh, coinciding in that way was uh, really tough. And so when I wrote the Mickey Mantle koan and restored John to, to Johnness, <laughs> it was, uh, it left me a kind of joy that isn't like happiness. It was really hard one, kind of the spiritual truth of the loss just dealt with, with dead honesty. And the joy was so helpful to me. And the 60s were such a, a hard and bitter time that I just thought, God, I could write a novel. I'd read, I'd read War and Peace. I'd read, I loved long Russian novels. 
I call the Brothers K my 19th century Russian baseball novel. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> got that family unique and it's unhappy. unhappy. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so I just, I had written the short story where the four brothers in the family are watching the Ed Sullivan show after Papa, Papa has crushed his thumb at the mm -hmm. paper. And I just looked at that again after creating the Mickey Mantle Cohen. And I was like, oh my God, there's a novel here. And it allowed me to spend the seven years it took to write The Brothers K with three older brothers again, living kind of the, the very different alternatives that John might've lived in reaction to the draft, the Vietnam War, um, campus radicalism, um, kind of the fight against Jim Crow, you know, MLK and freedom writers and all that stuff was contemporaneous. And I had no idea what kind of right it would have given him um, but but just chose to create three three polar opposite. It's not polar if it's three guys, whatever. Triadial <laughs> guys, and um, and I got to be Kincaid. I got to be the Alyosha, uh, you know, Karamazov. I got to be the the brother trying to understand the bizarre differences between the ability to experience that grief. You said unlocked a sort of joy that led to the writing of the Brothers K. What were you writing from before this? That's a good question. You know, because of, it was, the loss of my brother is what turned me to the novel because nobody could, nobody said anything that there's that form. Nobody said anything consoling. Nobody knew, it just, you know, pious platitudes and, uh, or, I mean, a lot of people in the neighborhood were just even afraid to look at us after my brother died because they didn't know what to say. It was really isolating for my mother. It wasn't so bad for me. Um, but in what well, was actually in a novel, Budenbrooks by Thomas Mann, uh, there's a kid who plays the clavichord. He's a prodigy. And I played the piano since I was five and loved to improvise. And this kid, uh, is the fourth generation of a wealthy German family, but each generation, the, the main, the heir, the male, it's that word scion, um, is a little more sensitive until you end up with this kid who's a prodigy and going to German, you know, military school just practically kills him when his alarm mm -hmm. goes off in the morning. And one day he drags himself back from this militaristic school and he play, he's playing this beautiful improvisation that Mon describes for about three pages. And then it, and it just ends with him exhausted, but it's a really beautiful description of music. And as someone who improvises and young Hanno Budenbrooks is improvising this fugue, it really, and I love fugues, especially, you know, Bach, can't beat Bach fugues. And um, it really slammed me. And then on the next page is just a medical description of typhoid fever. And it follows exactly the same pattern as the fugue that Hanno just improvised. So you know, he's gonna die. So this four generations of a family crushed into a, a, a fugue in four parts, then squished into a diamond by typhoid fever. 
and the kid had a, a best friend who was kind of like my alter, alter alter ego. He lived on kind of on the streets, but he was a count. And he was called the Ragged Count, and he. He goes to see Hano's body and uh, kisses his hands. That scene was so healing to me that I thought, of, I want to be a novelist. And I was 15 years old in high school. And I just thought, if I could do something like Thomas Mann did for me, even once in my life, it would be worth it to me. And I apprenticed myself to the novel while I was still in high school. So it was really, to get back to your question, it was really, I was attracted to dark literature, um, serious dark literature. And I was working on this uh, Christmas novel about what a sham the Christmas holiday is. And I've described that novel as like it would, reading a couple chapters would rip the sutures out of a fresh facelift, you know, it's like so dark. And, uh, <laughs> and he, uh, and then I, I was working on this and really had, I think I had a lot of 180 pages or something. And then suddenly these fishing chapters intervened. And uh, I was like, this is terrible. These chapters are funny. I don't want to be funny. <laughs> I want to be grim. And, uh, and well, I just have to get these fucking things out of my head. And so I wrote for like six months and I had 320 pages that was kind of a crude draft of the River Kwai. Um, and then it occurred to me that if you're really serious, you also want to include humor. You know, you want to be funny. Uh, it's, it's just so helpful when things are as dark as they sometimes are. So I realized I could use my humor um, as one of the two ways, I think shared grief and humor are the two great ways to open a reader's heart when they're reading your stuff. Those two mm -hmm. things are magic. Um, do you want to go to the um, the passages? Sure, let's go to the passages. Would you like um, set the scene a little bit? Well, Father Chance, Papa Chance has renewed his ability to throw a baseball by having his big toe removed replacing his pitching thumb uh, but it has greatly changed what he's what kind of pitches he's able to, to throw and really just the same way I'm a closet musician who never does anything professional with it he just starts throwing baseballs at a pitching shed with a mattress hung so it doesn't drive the neighbors crazy in the apartment house next door and he's just pitching again but of course, his sons are ecstatic that he's pitching again and have major league dreams for him, or at least dreams of a, some kind of a return to baseball, because he's still in his late 30s and throws a hell of a pitch uh, that gets nicknamed the kamikaze because it dives so hard and fast. So uh, a former major league pitcher and a, and a low-level um Baseball Sage, just kind of an old redneck who drinks way too much beer, but is really smart about baseball. So the sons, Everett, the rabble rouser, has coaxed this guy to come see what kind of pitches 
few chances throwing so that they know whether he has any kind of a chance at all in the majors. He's just talking about um, major league teams that might have him. And Papa says, a tryout, as you very well know, just isn't the point. Refresh my brains then, GQ said. What is a godforsaken point? Not even the Mets are interested in a 35-year-old gimp with a plastic toe on his foot and a real toe on his pitching hand. Now you, listen to me, Durham barked. The Twins, Dodgers, Yanks, Mets, and anyone else in their right baseball mind is interested in any man, woman, chicken, fish, or spaceman who pitches the way you pitch. The way I'm pitching, Papa said, is completely illegal. But GQ only looked disgusted. What is a man? 80, 90% water? And when does he play ball? Summertime, sweat capital of the year. So how is an ump ever going to monitor what's running nonstop out of every pore, uh, everybody in the place? The truth is, you couldn't throw a bone-dry legal ball if you wanted to, Hubert. This argument completely convinced six-sevenths of Durman, Durham's audience, but Papa didn't even appear to hear it. GQ tried again. I checked them balls and found nothing. I watched you and saw nothing. And if the likes of me can't see it, Hubert, the likes of umpires sure as hell won't. The spit that's gone for it reaches an ump is what we call in the trade incidental precipitation. And I say if it's incidental, it's legal. I felt like applauding this time, Kincaid talking, but Papa just sighed. Moving on ahead, Durham said, just tell your kids and me the truth here is all I'm asking a St. Hubert the confused. Don't, number one, Throw 50 pitches better than the best 50 of my big league life than tell us you ain't got the stuff. And don't, number two, argue spitball morality with me. The good book itself says a man should earn his living by the sweat of his brow. Now the situation with Laura, I know nothing about. But don't, number three, Hubert, try telling me it's good for these kids to see their old man stay a factory hand and hate it for a buck. Don't tell me that not being true to the work you've always loved most and did best is a help to your kids. Just repeat after me if it's the truth. I give up on baseball, Gail. I just don't love the game no more. Somehow the silence that followed in my ears had a stadium roar. And Papa found nothing to say to quiet it. You got one choice, son, Durham said. These kids here think you're a ball player. You and Laura used to think so too. And I'm here to tell the world you sure as hell still pitch like a ball player. But an honest player lets the game decide when he's finished. There's no other honorable escape. So you got one tryout left, Hubert. Show the game what you got and let it decide. A story about that. My dad was a great fast pitch softball pitcher. He's a city league all-star in Portland year after year. Um, he worked in an electronics plant just because of their softball team. <laughs> he hated to work, but he just went where the good team was. And when he was 44, he decided to hang it up. And he had one of his best years. And the last game he pitched was a one hitter. And he was batting over 400. And then he quit and came home. And something just went, had gone out of him when he stopped while he was still great. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I'm crazy enough at 
a ripe old age to have attempted the most ambitious book of my life and managed to get it done because um, I agree with Durham. You got to let the thing itself, the art form, the pitching or the art form decide whether you still got it. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Um, besides just being a good phrase is the idea of um, spitballing and, you know, cheating, but within the bounds of unwritten rules. Is there something core to the idea of baseball and morality in that? Well, it's, it's a huge question today. I mean, it's a very alive question. I don't watch enough uh, Major League Baseball to really be up on it. Um, but I have, I have read a fair, about, a fair amount about how incredibly adept pitchers have become at having their substance, their illegal substance of choice. So do you think even GQ would see that as, as too much? Yeah, I think, I think you probably have to draw the line somewhere. I mean, a lot of pitchers thrown here uh, and made it subtle enough that, I mean, we've, we've all read about some of the pitchers who relied on it heavily. That's actually a good segue into the hitter that's probably the most famous or infamous for having pine tar on his bat, uh, George Brett. Mm -hmm. And similar for me, the ball, I actually didn't think about this until hearing you talk about the make the mantle baseball. My grandmother died of Lou Gehrig's disease and there was a, uh, some benefit uh, event. My brothers and I got to attend in Kansas city. My grandparents are from Kansas city and we all got signed baseballs from George Brett. And it felt icky getting this ball because my grandmother was dying. And I, mm -hmm. uh, I still have the ball. I don't know where it is. Um, it's not something I ever thought about until now. And you know, George Brett is a, obviously an incredible uh, baseball player, a Hall of Famer. Um, but it, because we got it in this context of my grandmother dying, it didn't feel great. And I still don't know where the ball is to this day. Huh. Interesting. I like Brett because his left eye was his master eye. So he's not looking across his nose. It, it's an advantage for a right-handed hitter if, you're, if your left eye is your master, which mine is too. And I hit like six, 60 something in eighth grade. And I got hit by the, those pitches and became the only person you'll ever know whose batting average dropped 400 points in one year. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask about Everett, whose um, journey I found maybe the most interesting and fulfilling, maybe because it toggled back and forth between political and spiritual more than any of the others. Mm -hmm. Was that the journey you saw for him when you started writing the book? There wasn't a way that, I mean, I just, I always like to try to defy expectations when you start to pigeonhole a character. So Peter is the spiritual one. Peter's got a huge problem with his ego and, and he's in India when he's physically not capable of staying in, in India. And Everett, he's my favorite of the brothers too, although I really, I love all three of them, but I like the trajectory of his story. Um, I love some of the really subtle, sensitive scenes, um, like just when he's watching Buttercup's Wilt in a Campbell's soup can he's seen Irwin getting electroshock therapy in an ar army insane asylum. 
or when he really uh, prays to something incomprehensible to him, but he still is thanking this thing that he doesn't even know what to call it because he's receiving uh, consolation from an unseen source and has become through his failures uh, aware enough uh, that it's, it's carried him through to uh, reverence, to a certain reverence that's just natural to him. And so he doesn't start going to church. Thank God that was never going to happen. <laughs> but, um, but he, uh, he has big valid spiritual feelings that he tries to honor. I just always like my characters at some point to completely defy uh, expectation and mm-hmm. break out, break through some kind of a, a barrier. Cause I just, all the friends that I know uh, best uh, have all had those kinds of breakthroughs at some point. And they're like, you know, like I'm sure you both have. And um, so just try to, trying to honor our psycho-spiritual trajectory and not, so many writers now have gone dystopian or, I mean, throughout the history of, of literature, there've been, uh, especially I'd say 20th century American literature, there are a lot of writers who like to make their characters dumber than they are so that they can control them. Um, I like, I really enjoyed in Sunhouse making the characters smarter and wiser than I am so that sometimes I could, I hardly even knew what to say about them and would have to wait weeks to find a way to just gently put language around the kinds of uh, breakthroughs or spiritual uh, insights that or, or experiences that they were having. Has political activism for you always just felt like something you have to do to protect the places you love and people you, you care about? Or has it ever been like a source of self-realization and a, a place to um, find truth in some way? It, no, for me, it reaches a level where it feels almost carcinogenic uh, when you have impotent rage over some unbelievable injustice that's damaging to the earth and removing huge cause for wonder uh, to generations of children uh, ongoing where, and the things that are being destroyed always have no voice. And some moron with the the new technology always thinks their dumb shit idea is the best thing since lemonade uh, when, when it's incredible, like uh, cyanide heap leach gold mining, for example, which I, I gave a year to my life to trying to save Norman's river. Um, it was an army of people, it was thousands of people who stopped that from happening. So it just reaches a point um, where I'm, I'm just burning up and uh, I, I feel like I have to get it out of me to get the toxicity out of me. And then I've done something as meaningful as I knew how to do uh, with, with my little art form. And, and a few times it's made a difference. So great to get to talk to you, David. Um, Congratulations on the new novel. Um, We'll look forward to seeing that next year. Uh, Everyone, please um, check out The Brothers K and the Mickey Mantle Koan if you haven't read them yet. Thank you again, David. Thanks, guys. And thank you for listening to The Mudville Nine.